podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to episode two of Ness and Dorma, the 80s and 90s football chat. Thanks to everybody listening last week to our first ever episode and actually placed us in the top 10 sports episodes in the UK. Only for about six hours, I think, but even so, I'll take that. I am Lee Calvert. Um, I am your host for this evening and I am joined by Mr. Rob Smythe of The Guardian. Hello, Rob. Hello, how are you doing? Not too bad at all this fine evening. And also joining us is author of When Football Came Home, the excellent book about Euro 96, Mr. Mike Gibbons. Hello, Mike. Hi, Lee. How are you doing? Not too bad. You can get in touch with the pod. Uh, we're on Twitter at Pod. We're also, there's a Facebook page, Pod, or you can get in touch with email, which is contact at nessundormapod.com. And of course, there's a website, nessundormapod.com. Also at the website, if you go to the website, nessundormapod.com, there's a mailing list there you can sign up for. So you'll get updates about the episodes that are coming up, details of when they're launched. This pod is available on Acast. It's available on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, as we have to call it now. Uh, please subscribe while you're there. Tell your friends if you like what we're talking about and hopefully we can spread the word and you can join us for this uh, weekly football conversation. We've actually had an email after our first uh, episode, amazingly. Rob, would you believe? Really? Yeah, no, yeah. Uh, actual feedback from, from well, I think it's a human being, um, which is from Mac Millings, who, who, who said a few things, but he made a point about, and this is a good point, about footballers who, look, who always looked really old. And he suggested Jan Kuhlemans. He probably did always yeah. look old. Uh, for me, it was always, it made me think of, and maybe this is just a 70s thing, an 80s thing, but Mick, Mick Mills of Ipswich looked permanently 50. Mm. Yeah, fair point. And, uh, yeah, yeah, maybe it was in the hair, I don't know, with him. Or, yeah, I think Norman soon, Whiteside is another one. I think as soon as you, Norm- grow, as soon as you grow a tash, it's all over. That's true, actually. Oh, but the opposite way, obviously, if you get to 50, you can't. <laughs> attached you got a problem white side was a bit like that i think he went through puberty at about two and obviously <laughs> yeah, that's true. he was just an absolute beast. he didn't actually look that old in terms of his face but just he was just obviously a man when other people giant, didn't know what masculinity yes, was a giant man with a sort of toddler's face we like that mm-hmm. um yeah so if you've got out there anybody any footballers you can think of that always looked old even though they weren't, uh, then like Norman Whiteside or Mick Mills or Jan Kuhlemans, uh, the famous Jan Kuhlemans, then uh, drop us a line. Uh, contact and Actually, on that... Yeah, go on. Oh, no, sorry, I was going to say, on that note, he doesn't quite qualify for 90s, but Daniel Taylor had a good line about um, Wayne Rooney because Ollie Solskjaer was called the Babyface Assassin. Hmm. So when Rooney emerged, Daniel Taylor, the Guardian, called him the Assassin Face Baby, which was quite nice. <laughs> that is a good line, yeah. But you can get in touch with suggestions to us, uh, contact at nessandormapod.com or at nessandormapod on Twitter, and you can give us some suggestions. Thanks very much. Right, we're going to start... What have we got coming up this week? We've got, we're going to start with how the hell did he get a cap, which is where we look at some players and wonder just that how the hell did they get a cap we're going to look at the first four years of Alex Ferguson's uh, reign at Manchester United uh, when he um, oh well we'll talk about that as we go through and also then we'll talk about we're going to pick up on a, on a semi-regular basis looking at PFA teams of the year and having a look at them and see if they made any sense and we'll talk about that as well we're going to look at 1995-96 uh, this week in case you're interested if anybody wants to look that up on the phone while we're waiting to get there you can do that as well so then let's talk about how the hell did he get a cap who wants to go first on this one um, mm-hmm. I'll go. go on then Mike you go first because you have got a doozy go on okay 
Uh, I'm going to go for Mr. Neil Razor Ruddock, uh, who got one cap uh, against Nigeria, 1994. Um, yeah, and how the hell did he get a cap? Uh, Ruddock, for me, he's always personified that he's almost the last hurrah of, you know, the <laughs> defender compensates for skill with just, you know, absolute brute force. Um, I mean, also, I think the only reason he got a cap was, you know, it was in the Venables era when it was the two-year trial with friendlies before Euro 96. Um, and it's just the cap, this kind of, it's that cliche of caps going around like confetti. I think Venables gave 27 debuts out during that time. Sorry, If you can name all 27, that'll be just great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at Ness and Dorman. Oh, Barry Venison was one, wasn't he? Barry Venison as well, and Kevin Richardson. I mean, even at Sands of Hearts, you had, you know, uh, John Scales, David Unsworth, Colin Cooper, who played against Brazil. I think that was his David. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think Rodrigo he kind of got in there because of, you know, it was that kind of perfect storm of circumstances in which he could get a cap. And also okay. he was connected to Tottenham as well. Venables had signed him. Was he still uh, at Tottenham? Thing, I was going to say Venables really liked him. No, he got to Liverpool by then. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for like two and a half million or something like that um, yeah and Ruddick he kind of exists now as that kind of you know after dinner speaker or he's on those hilarious BBC clip shows where he just goes <laughs> on ad nauseum about how hard he is uh, there, you know. was, there was someone I know who met him with a view to a, a project I forget what it was but he was introduced by an agent and he said that when he met him Ruddick told a joke so disgusting that he wouldn't <laughs> even tell me what the joke was and like this is not someone remotely squeamish or anything, and but he said he said I genuinely can't tell you the joke; it's that bad. <laughs> so that's kind of my that's going to be my last impression of Neil Ruddock. What kind of joke would that be? The mind boggles, doesn't it? I think, I think yeah, it, I've I, I've got an idea, but yeah, <laughs> there's there's actually there's one great story about Ruddock um, in Stan Collymore's book. He said they were both rehabilitating at Liverpool, and players were out training, everyone else in the gym, loaded kids training, and Collymore and Ruddock. And uh, apparently the minute Ronnie Moran went out of the gym, Ruddock sat down, pulled out a copy of The Sun and a bacon sandwich, started eating it. Where was and he then keeping the, minute... the bacon sandwich is my question. I, let's, not, let's not go there either. But um, And Collie Moore tipped him off that Moran was coming back maybe 10 minutes later or whatever. So Ruddock pours a bottle of water over his head, gets on the treadmill. Water makes it look like he's been sweating profusely. And Ronnie Moran gave all the kids a lecture about what a superb pro Ruddock was. <laughs> and if they followed him, they'll go to the top. And they spent 10 minutes watching him eat his bacon roll. Picking up on that point, I always thought John Scales was a better player than his England caps warranted, actually. I don't think he was quite as disgraceful a cap as, as Ruddock was. There were a few of those in the kind of Wimbledon. They, they were kind of stigmatised by that, weren't they? Keith Curl was a really good centre-half, I thought. Terry Feeney was a pretty good left-back. Even Dennis Wise could play when he wasn't being the most obnoxious man or starting a fight in an empty room, as Fergie put it. Robbie I Earth. think, I mean, Scales, yeah, that was a nice player. There were a lot of them. Even, I remember they had a lad called Andy Roberts who played central midfield. He was quite a nice player. Um, but I think everyone everyone were kind of damned by association. And also there were, there were people like Ben Thatcher, weren't there? So, you know, you had to... That's, that's a fair point. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Rob? Um, oh, go on, sorry. Finish your point, Mike, about Ruddick. I was just going to say, Ruddick himself, I mean, he broke... Both of Andy Cole's legs in one challenge. Um, in a <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. Yeah. That's awful. But yeah, go it's, it's yeah, kind of he broke, he broke Peter Beardsley's jaw in a testimonial. Apparently, again, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't, in a challenge, um, and he does. He makes a living, you know, after dinner circuits of just bragging about this kind of stuff. Now, 
He, he, was uh, part of, he was part of the Spice Boys, obviously, and he, I think it was him and Dominic Matteo had their own little group. And their, their wind down on a Sunday from a big, big weekend was a 20-pinter. It's in Matteo's book. That was their wind down, like, 20-pint straightener. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, you have to factor in the caveat that obviously that is embellished bollocks, don't you? So actually, their wind down was actually about seven pints, probably. I'm not sure... Well, have you seen Ruddock? I That's don't know, true. Anyway. I reckon Ruddock probably shifted. Yeah, I mean, I, I never associated Ruddock with the Spice Boys. I just thought that was the no, younger gang. True. Do you know what I mean? But yeah, he was that era. What, yeah. Okay, Rob. What about who are you questioning? Why the hell did he get a cap? Well, first of all, I'd like to say that all these players, were we to play five aside with them, even now, never mind <laughs> yes. in their prime, yeah, yes, would be dizzyingly good. So I kind of feel a bit guilty, but there are still players who you think, well. How did they get a cap? And I, I'm going to go for Andy Gray, not the Scottish version, because he was bloody good, but the Crystal Palace midfielder who made his one and only appearance in a crucial European Championship qualifier in Poland in 91. I don't think he'd been in a squad before. Not only did Graham Taylor bring him in, he started him. Um, and Gray had an absolute shocker. He missed a sitter in the first half. Then at halftime, England were 1-0 down. They had to draw to go through, I think. And he was hooked at halftime. England did draw, but he never... I played again. But the one weird thing is that apparently Taylor told him from the kickoff to hoof the ball straight out of play. Like, they wanted to get territory, basically. So, great stuff going into my international debut, and I've got to lump the ball straight out of play from first touch. But he was slaughtered in the press, and particularly by Jimmy Hill. He, he did have a shocker, in fairness. He was a good player, but and Palace had finished third the previous season, but it was so far out of left field. And then, but it shows that actually he kind of he sort of flew too close to the sun because. The abuse or the criticism affected him so badly that he said basically his career went to pot. He started trying too hard. Within two or three months, he was in the reserves, put on weight, and he's, he said basically he never recovered. He'd been in the form of his life, and he just never recovered and remember one bad half. So, um, yeah, I'm sure he'd be thrilled. It's, for, for a my, well, my, my nomination is from the Taylor era as well, which is the obvious one, I'm sure, for listeners out there, who is the obvious one, which is Carton Palmer, which is... And I suppose the thing with the te- with a lot of managers, we think, all right, I disagree with you, but I can see what you're trying to achieve here. With Taylor, there was always an element of, I don't know what you're trying to do here. You know, like with Andy Gray being parachuted into a crucial World Cup qualifier. It's like, all right, you've done okay at Palace, but I don't know what you're trying to do. Which is weird because Taylor was actually, he was obviously a very intelligent man and he, he made very logical decisions at Watford. Mm. Um, but I agree with you. Probably, I like I think you can defend Taylor up to a point, but you keep coming back to A, the people he picked, and B, the people he didn't, specifically Waddle and your man Beardsley, and you just mm. can't get past that. How can you be leaving out Waddle and Beardsley when you've got some like decent mid-table top-flight players at best in your team? But yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you probably want to talk about your man. Yeah, well, you know, how can you leave out Waddle when you've got this man, I suppose, which is uh, Carlton Palmer. The funny thing is, is that a lot of people might say, yeah, but Carlton Palmer was a midfielder and Waddle was a winger. But actually, the point you made last week, Rob, was about the fact that when Waddle played centre midfield in 1990, he looked quite the player. So it's not... Yeah, exactly. It's more the... But, but even um, some of the people uh, Taylor did pick in Waddle's position, like, you know, Andy Sinton, again, a good player, Andy Sinton. I think he was slightly underrated, but he wasn't a better right winger than Chris Waddle. Um yeah. yeah. Well, going back to Carlton Palmer, first of all, going back to big headers, which I talked about we missed last week, uh, he, he scored a magnificent sort of 30-yard looper that beat Neville Southall. He did Southall. at Everton, you yeah. Have yeah. seen that one, Mike? I have, yeah. Yeah, I've seen that, yeah. Incredible. It's amazing. To head it without power. Also, some good he, managers, some good managers like Palmer, though. 
Ron Atkinson was another one. But I'd like to know what they saw, though. He was I, I, I never thought he was quite as bad as people made out, personally. But, but yeah, I, I think he won about 20 cabs, didn't he? 18. Which is a Not lot, just how the hell did he lot. get a cab, how the hell did he get 18 yeah. cabs. But it's also... A, um, yeah, he scored a 30-yard th- loop of a south- southward. He, f- he scored that famous diving header against San Marino. And then I think <laughs> in that same game, he started a fight against San Marino as well. Maybe that's what they liked. What I imagine, what I like about it is the San Marino players, they all worked, didn't they? So he must have been like, no, don't hit me in the face. I've, I've got to work at a hotel reception <laughs> tomorrow morning sort of thing. But um, yeah. Can I just pull you up on one thing? Oh, go. That famous header against San Marino. Yeah. <laughs> yeah oh, God, yes. Did I say famous? Like... Well, it was in a no, way. No, no, no. I'm not... No, I'm not saying it wasn't, but I mean, it just shows. It just shows, doesn't it? Relative poverty of his career. <laughs> We're talking about fame. Yeah, and he, um... One of my favourite Graham Taylor TV interviews ever was uh, just before the 92 European Championship. He's been interviewed on the BBC or something with like two players. He had Carlton Palmer one side of him and I think David Batty the other. And he signed off the interview with uh, something like, go and put your feet up, put the kettle on and watch us win it. And then it took that... <laughs> For three of them in a row, and you just think, I love delusional hubris, but that, that's just... <laughs> that reminds me that, that of the Liberal Democrat conference that time. Was it go back to your constituencies and prepare for government? David Steele in the 80s. <laughs> it, it feels a little bit like that. The thing about, I mean, Palmer won, he didn't. Is, was was he a victim of looking a bit too stupid to be considered any good? Because he, he ran like a horse doing a cartwheel, didn't he? So basically, was there an element I, of was it that the money ball thing that actually he doesn't look like he should be any good, therefore he can't be? I don't think that helped. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I think also he was one of the last. I mean, Taylor is the kind of standard bearer for the the obscure cap in the history of England managers. I think it largely comes from was it ninety one they went on that tour to Australia yes. and New Zealand. Yeah, and you know. Brian Dean was on that tour and got capped. Uh, God, you know, Brian up. Dean, man. I think he, I think he played twice on that tour. And you know, you know, the famous what you know, Jeff Thomas dragging that shot wide, um, Andy Sinton, and it was just what? that brick, brick dismantling of the Italian ninety team, and them all being replaced with, you know, a clearly inferior players. <laughs> what I like about the Thomas selection is that he played however many games it was. He played every game up to that France game. And then afterwards, that was it. It was almost like he was airbrushed, like we won't talk about that. I could just imagine Taylor having a moment of clarity when that chip sailed miles wide. Like, I've got to do something about it. <laughs> Even I can't get away with this one. And he was. It was almost like he'd been just airbrushed out of history. I, I don't, I'm pretty sure he never played again, even though he'd been a regular going into Euro 92. Just like, like yeah, that was, that's enough now. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Carlton Palmer, for, uh, you know they said that people... People say that you know people have a first touch like the balls on a piece of elastic. His was like that, but it was like the elastic had been tied to the furthest point away from him. Basically, <laughs> that was the, that was the problem with him. But yeah, so there you go. How the hell did he get a cap? You can have some nominations sent in to us at Ness and Dormer Pod or on the email if you want to let us know if you've got any nominations of people and how the hell did, did they get a cap? They don't have to be English. I will stress that there might be some people from different teams. Oh, finger up, Rob. Yeah, go. No, I was going to say it'd be quite good to hear about countries that are used to producing really good players. So like, who's the worst Brazilian? you've ever seen or I don't know who's the worst West German player to get a German player to get a cap there must be some out there yeah, I think with Brazil people would go for Serginho wouldn't they oh of really course good... the, the big man up front yeah yeah and actually some of the some of the Brazil defenders as well never mind the goalkeepers that's probably another episode in itself <laughs> 
Right, thank you very much for that. Now we're going to talk about, uh, obviously, we're, we're 80s, 80s and 90s uh, podcasts. We're trying to get some d- interesting stories and look at different periods from football. So one of the things I want to talk about now is is Alex Ferguson in the first four years. We might go a bit further than that, but generally speaking, the first four years uh, up until 1990. One thing, one thing I, was, I wanted to mention Big Ron, even though I'm not talking about Big Ron, because that's who we took over from. When you rewatch stuff for Big Ron from the eighties, it really is quite remarkable. Just just looking at him is is a fascinating thing in itself. I love the fact that Tommy Do- you ever know what Tommy Doherty said about Ron Atkinson? They hate each no, other, no, don't they? But he said yeah. he said people Tommy Doherty said, imagine this in the Doherty voice because I can't do it. He said people call him Big Ron because he makes big moves in the transfer market. He said, I just call him Fat Ron. <laughs> Said said the skeletal Tom. Well, exactly, yeah. yeah. And also, Big Ron had a sunbed in his office, apparently. Yeah, he did, yeah. But what makes me laugh is is that when he was interviewed about it, he said it was meant to be in the medical room, but he ended up in my office. And it made me go, hang on a minute. (laughs) What medical reason is there to have a sunbed in a physio room at a football club? Yeah, he hadn't thought that one through, had he, to be fair. <laughs> just like, that's a, such a terrible excuse, Ron. But anyway, Ron went, Fergie came in. So what do we want to pick up about and discuss about Fergie? Well, the obvious point is just how much he struggled. For, I mean, four years, now there is absolute... This this is the contradiction, I think, with modern football and people getting sacked, is that possibly the greatest manager of all time, if you impose modern values on his United career, he would have been sacked long before he won a trophy. He would have been dismissed as a complete failure. Um and you can't get away from that. He properly struggled. It wasn't like they were finishing where they did under David Moyes even. They were finishing 13th. They were in relegation battles. They were they played terrible football. Um, they were second they in 88. They did finish second once. Second 88, they? Yeah, which is weird. And I've never quite worked out how they went from there and regressed so sharply um, until they kind of got it together again two years later. But, I mean, I think people slightly romanticize, say, well, we always knew he was going to, you know, he was doing good work with the youth team. That's revisionist bollocks people were people thought he was out of his depth completely i think he did to be honest i think he was obviously too stubborn and too strong to give up but i think there were definitely times when he would have wondered whether it was ever going to work out and he said he felt like a criminal when they lost 5-1 city he said he couldn't look couldn't walk down the street he said every man i saw i felt like i'd let him down i felt like a criminal mike yeah i think bobby, bobby charlton's always given it the big one about um oh we never <laughs> even did it sacking him at any point but you, you have to wonder how close they came at some yeah. point especially when the fans started to turn on him as well well it got really tight didn't it, before the FA Cup run because they lost at home to Palace who were not very good and that was the day the famous banner went up three years of excuses it's still crap to Ralph Ergie and I think it was that night I I think the cup draw was done on the Saturday evening that week and they drew Forrest away. And Forrest were not only a really good side they are also United's nemesis they put them out the previous season um Clough loved putting one over on United and Fergie. Um, and it just looked like they were finished. Because the FA Cup was huge then. It was enough to save a man's job, as we saw. Mm. Um, yeah, it's really interesting how just how much he struggled. I think it, the, the, there's a quote where he, I think it was Robson and Whiteside kind of just shook his head and said, God, big club this after a couple of years. And I think the whole thing did take him by surprise. And then it was 89 was quite important because he decided, I think he took too long to rebuild because he wanted to kind of do it the right way, be fair to everyone. Then in 89, he just thought, sod this, and bought a load of players. And actually didn't all work out, but it gave him enough impetus eventually. Kind of, they won the FA Cup, and from there, that was such a big turning point. What year did Hughes come back? That was 88. I mean, he came back in 88, which was a... And I think he won player of the year that year, even though United finished 13th or whatever. I mean, there were moments 
I think one really important period was at the start of 1989. They thrashed Liverpool on live TV New Year's Day with a load of kids in the team. Lee Sharp, Lee Martin, Russell Beardsmore, Mark Robbins. And, and then there was so much goodwill because for a while they had loads of injuries. He played loads of kids like Tony Gill, Daniel Graham. And there was real goodwill towards him as there always is. And that kind of bought him a little bit more time, I think. It turned out none of them really made it apart from Sharp. But I think that actually, without that period, I think that there was enough residual goodwill just about to keep him the job. And then, of course, the next lot of kids who came through were were superstars. By then, he was established. Yeah. Um, so let, can we talk about some transfers he made, maybe? I, I want to talk about Ralph Milne specifically, because it's always seen as... It, it, it wasn't he was named as the worst player ever in a United fan poll, even though he cost, yeah. 50, he cost 50 grand. So it's a bit of a leap to say he's the worst player ever. I, I, yeah, I think... Sorry, go on, Mike. Well, I was going to say, I think they got him right at the end of his career. I mean, you know, the irony of it was he, he was a great player in Scotland yeah. for, um, you know, for Dundee United. You know, a brilliant player, integral to them, winning the their one and only Scottish League title. But he was just kind of, by the time Fergie bought him, I think Fergie took a punt on him because he was so cheap. Um, and he was just finished. And uh, it was kind of really sad to watch him. He, he had to play because the injury crisis was that kind of great that they didn't have anyone else to put in there and, and it wasn't until like this sort of signed Lee Sharp that they could kind of remove Milne from the team but and, and yeah the performances don't lie though. I mean he was absolutely dreadful <laughs> it's real I know Ferguson but I think, but, but, go on Rob but because of that people Mike said people don't realise how good he was like what if you watch the goal on YouTube that he scored the Dundee United went to Dundee their rivals last day of the season having to win to win the league and after about four minutes he's run from the halfway line because he's a fantastic chip I, I didn't realise even growing up how good he was at all I just assumed he was what I saw before me which wasn't very good Ferguson makes but a it, big point about how much he helped Lee Sharp as a young player or maybe he just that, says that just to make it sound like it wasn't as bad as, as everyone else thinks it is I think Milne had a few personal problems as well didn't he I think he was drinking too much as well, well he, died, he, he died at 54 yeah, liver failure yeah. yeah so yeah it's pretty sad because I, I think yeah, most people in England just don't know how good a player he was. Yeah. But there were I others, I mean... You... Sorry, go on. Oh, I was just going to say, I think when you weigh it in the scales of all of Fergie signings, Milne isn't, you know, it's not Bebe. It's, you know, <laughs> Milne actually was a player. Yeah, exactly. And you're right. It was a, it was like a freebie punt, wasn't it, really? 150 grand or 50 grand. Nothing lost, really. I mean, McClare was an important signing. He, first season, he played up front and he scored, became the first man to score 20 league goals since George Best. <laughs> for United, which was a huge thing. And then he kind of, when Hughes came, his role changed a bit and he was he was never quite the same again. He was a really important player, but he ended up pushed further and further back. But a lot of them didn't work. Like Viv Anderson looked a really simple, straightforward, cheap signing, like a no-brainer. Had a lot of injuries, didn't work out. Jim Layton, we know about. Um, so it was a while. Even the, the five signings he made at the start of the 89-90 season were Paul Ince, Neil Webb, Mike Phelan, um, Pallister, and uh, someone who I've completely for Danny Wallace so I mean there was a great success with those Ince and Palace obviously um, but he bought Steve Bruce as well that was a really good signing kind of a player who wasn't that well known hmm. I think it was 800,000 but he didn't it was only really in around 1990 91 when he started to make some really really significant brilliant signings like Kanchelski Schmeichel Paul Parker Irwin who you know of course yeah of course um, yeah but it was so close. He could have been sat. They were looking at Leo Bainhacker, apparently, who um, I think he was Real Madrid manager or had been Real Madrid manager. He he was being discussed, according to David Miller, the old Times journalist. Right. 
So I think it was quite close. Do you think that time, one of the reasons why it's stated that Ferguson is you know, the greatest manager of all time was his ability or the number of times he dismantled a squad and rebuilt a squad again. Was there something in those four years that taught him something about it? You mentioned earlier that maybe he waited a bit too long. Is that why he was so, Mike, is that why he was so decisive later on, do you think? Uh, yeah, I think so. It was really trial and error those first four years. Um, also, he brought in a lot of players that did a really good short-term job for him. Like Mal Donahue came in for uh, you know a couple of years, did a good job. Danny Wallace, uh, who Rob's mentioned, I mean, it didn't, didn't quite work out for him, but that first season on that cup run, he, made, he scored quite a lot of vital goals on that on that run to the final. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a lot of players who did like a, a good interim job for him, but who just weren't you know, you know, you're never going to win the league and kind of thing. So I think I don't think there was any kind of grand master plan from the ground up. I think most of it with Fergie was just, you know, trial and error. Some stuff stuck and some didn't. And uh, Rob, you got your finger up there. I, th- I think one thing that was really important was that um, the cup semi-final, the cup final replay rather against Crystal Palace, he dropped him late and brought in Les Seeley. Now that was a brutal decision because he knew Leighton for years. They pretty much never spoke to each other. Certainly, they kind of friendship never recovered. But it just showed that he had the kind of gambler's instinct, but also the courage to take. Like that was an incredibly courageous decision because if that goes wrong, let's see, he throws one in. He wasn't even at the club; he was on loan. Um, then he would be slaughtered, maybe lose his job. But he didn't see he played well. They won, and and of course, his career has been defined by that. Really, just incredibly tough decisions, and also unsentimental decisions. I think was one of his strengths. Um, you know about all the great players he got rid of down the line, as well. But I think also, but it was kind of he, the the development went from 1990 when they won the cup, 91 cup won his cup, 92 league cup, 93 league. But I think a forgotten bit is the 1990-91 League Cup run. They lost to Sheffield Wednesday in the final. But on the way, they beat Liverpool. They stuffed Liverpool. They thrashed Arsenal 6-2 at Highbury. The great defence, who I think conceded 18 goals that season. Uh, beat Leeds in the semi. And they just played for the first time in a kind of proper, the way that we would associate Ferguson's team. Two wingers, counter-attacking, real speed and swagger. And I think that was actually a really important kind of um, period in the club's history, particularly the 6-2 at Arsenal. To me, I know the FA Cup is kind of where it started, but in terms of the United we would come to recognise, I think it starts when they beat, Liverpool, uh, beat Arsenal 6-2. The day Maggie Thatcher was binned, I think. Is it really? I think so, yeah. And I only cared about one thing in my little teenage brain, and it wasn't, <laughs> and it was... it wasn't the state of the country. <laughs> I actually got... I got the worst ever exam mark of my life the next day. I got like 23% in the geography exam because I was just too excited. I thought I listened to the game on Radio 2, whatever it was, revise after it. I couldn't. So. I think it's probably worth making a point about, um, you know, a lot of Fergie's signings were kind of forced by players that he didn't actually get. I mean, the big one is obviously Paul Gascoigne. Yeah, he thought he the whole of the summer of 88. And I think that led to him signing Neil Webb. I think, is that right? Possibly, I mean, a year later, but yeah, probably, yeah, exactly. He's not going to buy Gascon and Webb, is he? But you're right, okay, he came quite close to Beardsley, I think. Um, yeah. Pallister, they got really lucky because they missed out on Glenn Hussain. Liverpool gazumped them at the last minute, and United had to buy Pallister instead, and United got lucky with that because Hussain was was past it. Um, so, yeah, they, it's funny how things work out. I mean, I know he wanted, there were a lot of players he wanted. He tried to sign Kevin Drinkle at one point. Stuart Pearce, obviously, apparently Clough just used to ignore the phone. And I'll tell people, <laughs> tell people, tell him, tell him to bugger off, that kind of thing. They only got Webb because it was out of contract, so I went to a tribunal. He was unlucky, actually. Webb started brilliantly. He scored a 
beautiful curling volley against Arsenal on his debut at Old Trafford. And then he got injured a month later in Sweden. I think he did his Achilles. And he was never the same player again. So things like that delayed the kind of development of the side as well. There's also the development of the players themselves, isn't it? If you look at... Because if you... There's a lot a lot of people make the point that, that Ferguson wasn't a very good coach. He's a very good manager, not a good coach. I mean, you know, that people make that point, don't they? Sometimes he tried to take training drills and everyone would laugh because it was like rubbish. But I'm not sure if that's very fair because if you look at people like Pallister, the Pallister that arrived compared to the Pallister that was playing by 1990, 1991-92, mm. seemed to be a different player to me. Yeah, although you, you wonder how much of that was just... The uh, kind of capacity of the hairdryer to make people concentrate a bit more. I don't know. Yeah, who needs, think, who needs coaching when you can just bollock people? Yeah, okay. I think he had a good coaching team, definitely. I don't know who was up. Like, I always think a great example later on was Andy Cole. He kind of signed a goal scorer and made him into a footballer, or someone did. Um, so, yeah, I think that, whether that was Ferguson, I'm not sure. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Any views on that, Mike? Uh, yeah, well, I think you, you could probably see the same development in Steve Bruce as well. I mean, uh, going back quickly to how the hell do they win a cap? How the hell do they <laughs> yeah. win? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Captain winning team. Um, but I mean, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm not close enough to know uh, how, how much it was Brian Kidd or how much it was Alex Ferguson. Uh, but I know you, you'd think early on in that Ferguson didn't have the entourage early on that he had, you know, by the end of the 90s. So I think he would have been a bit more involved in that stage, I, I would expect. One other thing worth mentioning, crowds went as low in the, the back end of the 88-89 season. They they were going nowhere in the league and they lost a cup quarter final to Forest. And after that, the scene just petered out, losing game after game, not scoring. Crowds went as low as 23,000 for a game at home to Wimbledon, um, which you can't imagine an Old Trafford, the United game at Old Trafford, the crowd of 23,000. That's 000. interesting because a lot of United fans always say no matter what happened, there were always the same number of people there. It was always 50,000 yeah, people at Old Trafford, you know. Every every club says that. But you could also, I mean, you could look at. I think there's a famous game in '99 when Man City played Mansfield in front of about twelve and a half people. Um, so every club has it. But yeah, it's interesting that they went that low. Uh, he was he was not liked at all, really, because it wasn't just they were crap. They were actually quite boring. They were quite slow. Um, that was why that was what was so exciting about the League Cup run because they were playing with such pace. Um, yeah, it's really it's hard to fathom how they could be second and do really well in 87, 88, that great draw at Liverpool, 10 men when they came back and Whiteside kicked Liverpool over Anfield and then they just um, just were crap again. Actually, that's another thing worth mentioning. Selling Whiteside and McGrath was again hugely courageous because they were both brilliant players but he decided the drinking culture was too great or whatever and decided to get rid of them and they both went on to have great seasons. Whiteside for Everton and McGrath at Villa and to do that and to know the risk of taking in terms of public perception was just so courageous. While we're on McGraw, I just I had a great story about McGraw was that um I think it was when he was at Villa, they had to stop playing the offside trap. Because <laughs> because McGraw defended everything. No matter how many times you told him, No, Paul, you've got to step up there, <laughs> he would just run and defend it. I'd do a brilliant job, by the way. But they came to the point where they had to sort of say, We've either got to drop Paul or stop playing the offside <laughs> trap. That 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 was apparently where they got to with Paul McGraw. So he didn't he didn't train, he couldn't play the offside trap, <laughs> and he was an absolute genius. Did <laughs> they said the number of times he'd move somewhere and they go, why is he standing there? And the ball had hit him in the chest. You know, that he was that kind of player. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, I'll just mention as well someone someone we haven't touched on yet, but Brian Robson, who was obviously there for the whole time. There's a there's an awful lot of revisionist rubbish about him that you know. He, he wasn't as good as he's made out now and he's romanticised, you know, 
he kind of really held it together for Fergie in those first four years, I think. Yeah. You know, held the, held the dressing room together, held it together on the pitch. Um, in the bar. And especially you know, when Whiteside and uh, McGraw left, I think it's a bit of a, a slight myth that the drinking culture just disappeared and it suddenly became monastic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You'd have to wonder what would happen if they'd thrown gas going in there as well. <laughs> so when Roy Keane arrived, I mean, he, I think he says in his first um, autobiography, he was delighted to find out that there was a kind of, you know, yeah, illicit drinking culture that was going on every yeah. Sunday. I love the fact you use that word, delighted to find. Here's one for you both. How different would Gascoigne's life be if he'd gone to United? I'm not sure it would be that different, personally. Um, uh, kind of problems with alcohol. I think they're a bit more intractable than, you, you know, what kind of career decision you'd have. Could Fergie have stopped him going down that road? I don't know. I mean, he would have been a very different pair of hands to Venables. That whole thing, old London, was too much for him. You know, I, I, I don't really buy into that. There was an interview with Paul McGrath about probably going back 10, 15 years now when he was in one of his more sober periods. And he was in Dublin, I think, being interviewed, and he was in an hotel. And the interviewer said to him, are you not, um, isn't it a problem for you being here? He said, what do you mean? He said, well, you're near all these bars and you're near all these pubs. He said, why would that be a problem for me? He said, well, be, you know, because of your history. And he said, do you really think that I drink because of the availability of pubs? Yeah, he said, you know, I drink alone to go into total yeah. blackness. You know, it's kind of. Yeah. And I know Gascoigne's a different character to McGrath, but the point is, is that people who you're very right, Mike. It's not as simple as sort of saying if he had a decent bloke shepherding him through, it would have been fine. I can, you know, it that is not what it would have been like. I think it would have been maybe not quite as tabloidy with the company that he kept because he wasn't. You know what I mean? But actually, yes. I I think that it still would have ended up the same way because he's not well. That's the people don't seem to accept with Gazza. He's not well, exactly. And there is not exactly. a magic hair dryer treatment that can stop you from being yeah. not well. You know. And as, and as Mike said, there was still a pretty significant <laughs> drinking culture. I mean, we heard all the stories about Gasco when he went to Middlesbrough, and that was when Robson was manager, ten years older. Never mind when he was a player. So. Yeah, true I, I mean, story. I was in university in Middlesbrough in that in that period, the Paul Merce and Paul Gascoigne period, <laughs> when they were both in inverted commas not drinking. And let me just tell you that I did see them drinking quite quite a few times. <laughs> they were out a yeah, lot. Was, maybe we should do um, that one week. Great, great drinking cultures of eighties and nineties football. Yeah, but glorious. Yeah. Yeah. That was also um, the night, I'll tell you that story another time, that was also the night when Janino, Branca and Emerson all turned up at the student nightclub on a Wednesday night. No, well, that's All fantastic. three of them I read, yeah. I read something today actually talking about how uh, how different things used to be, sorry to veer into cricket briefly, but the 86-87 Ashes, the morning of the uh, first test, both them Gower and Alan Lamb were in a nightclub till 3am the morning of the first test. Imagine that now. You don't have to run around watching cricket though, do you? It's a fair point. And both of them was always better with a furious hangover. As was Robson, apparently. You could just drink and then turn up and train fine to bring it back to that point. Yeah, it's, it's true. I remember Robson playing as an Oldham fan. I'm an Oldham fan, Mike, so I should have told you that at the beginning. I remember Robson playing in the 94 games in the cup run that we played against him, and he was he was still... He scored with his balls. He did, yeah. He literally scored with his balls, yeah. He did, and then did that thing that he does, which is that double fist pump thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, because yeah. that's just what he does, isn't it? So there you go, then. That was the first four years of Alex Ferguson. Some interesting stuff there, I think. What are we going to talk about now? We're going to talk about now the 1995... Well, one, we're going to talk about the, the generally the PFA team of the season type stuff. We're going to pick this up regularly as we go through, but we've got 95-96. Pop quiz for you two. 
Um, who has appeared in the team of the year more times than any other player? Is that just in the nineties or any at any time? Gerard, Ron, oh, I think Mike. Um, is it Kenny Sanson? It is Kenny Sanson. <laughs> That's spectacular. However, eleven times. However, sub question because that includes Kenny Sanson when he wasn't in the top division. Who's appeared in the PFA Player of the Year team? the most times purely in the top division. Is it Stephen Gerrard, Lee? It's not. <laughs> no, it's not Stephen Gerrard. It's uh, think, th- think earlier. Uh, oh, blind. Dalgleish? No, no, that period, though, yeah. and before that as well. Oh, you had a very long career. Bobby Ch- No, it didn't exist then, did it? No. Oh, I'll put you out of your misery. It was Peter Shilton. Oh, of course it was. Ten times in the top division, Peter Shilton. Right, there you go. Now I've ruined all note, your confidence. Quick, quick blow of the year trivia. How many times, apologies for the answer's wrong, but I don't think it is. How many times did Matt Letizier win the Southampton Player of the Year award? It makes me think that it won't be many times by the phrasing of the question. So <laughs> I, I genuinely don't know, but it suggests it's a trick question. He's won it like twice or something. Yeah, I think it's three times from memory, which is just weird. But anyway, let's move on. Right, then, PFA <laughs> Team of the Year 1995-96. Now, 95-96, for those of you I'm sure you all remember, but for those of you who don't remember, this was the great I'd love it if we beat them season. And um, the winners, of course, eventually were Manchester United. Just to give you the top five that season, it was United, New- who won by four points eventually, Newcastle United, third place was Liverpool, Fourth place was Aston Villa. Was this the last time Villa were good? Uh, they were decent under O'Neill, but yeah, probably the last time they would have finished that high. They got to the Cup semi, I think, as well. Yeah, and then fifth place was Arsenal and Everton. So that was the kind of top place. So if you look at that, you'd, the PFA team of the year that year was the goalkeeper was David James. It was 4-4-2, obviously. Why else would it be? Did the PFA team of the years now actually have like 3-5-2? Or four three <laughs> two one. You know what I mean? I've got no idea. Yeah, so the... I today, actually, and um, they did do it four three three one year in the nineties. Oh, um, did they? I don't know why, just because maybe there weren't enough good midfielders that year. <laughs> they just they chucked another forward in. But uh... <laughs> right, so yeah, they should play around with it. You think they would now, wouldn't you? Because it can't be four four two now, surely. I'd go for a three three one three personally. <laughs> Championship manager. Yeah. The uh, so. The team was goalkeeper was David James. Defence was Gary Neville, Tony Adams, Ugo Ehiog. Left back was Alan Wright. Remember, little tiny dome-headed Alan Wright. Uh, midfield, speaking of dome-heads, midfield was Steve Stone, Rob Lee, Rude Hullett, David Ginola, and then up front was Les Ferdinand and Alan Shearer. Does it, just to be clear, we've been talking about United, and I don't want to go over this, just to be clear, there was one Manchester United player in that entire lineup. Discuss. Well, I think that's probably it. Shows you really when the voting was done. I mean, the voting for this. I'm sure this is the case back in the 90s. It was done in like January, February. Ah, right. Something like that. At that point, United would have been way behind Newcastle. Um, you know, not expected to win the league, and that's one of the reasons why Tony Adams would be in there as well because. From January to the end of the season, Adams didn't play for Arsenal at all. He was injured. Um, he, only just, he only just made it back in time for the um, for the Euro 96 squad. And Rob Lee, who had a brilliant start to the season, absolutely tanked in the second half of the season. And 
he did look nailed on to be in the Euro 96 squad, but then didn't make it at all. So it does kind of show you well, when the voting would have taken place, I think. Because, I mean, the two obvious things it misses out are, you know, Eric Cantona's great running, all those 1-0s, all those mm. kind of vital goals. And also that flush of Robbie Fowler in the spring as well. You know, yes. they'd have taken the voting a bit later. You know, they might have got in. But then, you know, Ferdinand and Shearer, that's a really strong front two. They both had brilliant. Shearer was a beast, wasn't he? He scored 30-odd in a team who weren't very good at all. Ferdinand was a bit like Rob Lee, wasn't he? Great first half of the season. And then kind of faded around the time they bought Esprit, even though I don't think it was Esprit's fault. I think it just coincided with them fading. But you know more about this, Mike. This is your this is your area of expertise around Euro 96. Yeah. Well, I think um, another thing which shows well, Steve Stone, um, he's, I think he scored in his first two England games that season. Yeah. And also, Forrest had a kind of quite high profile run in Europe. They got the third. They did, order. that's right. Got the quarterfinals and then just humped by Bayern Munich. But I think Stone Stone played really well on that run. Yeah, he was a bit of a cult. He was a bit of a cult hero, wasn't he, for a while, for about two yeah. months. <laughs> That's the best kind yeah. of cult. But the uh, the <laughs> we I went again going back to university days. This year I went to I went to Nottingham to play. I was playing rugby then. We went to Nottingham to play, and I distinct that thing about Nottingham Forest Cup. I distinctly remember some very large tanked up frightening men in forest shirts in the middle of Nottingham singing "One Team in Europe." There's only one team in Europe. I think everybody was out apart from them. At, at that yeah, point. that's right. I think they were the only ones who went to after Christmas. Can I ask one thing of both of you and also all four of our listeners? You know that period <laughs> at the start of the season when they all dyed their hair blonde, like Robbie Fowler did it, um, some other people did it. And um, did Steve Stone dye his little bits of hair blonde, or have I imagined that? Because I haven't been able to find proof either way, and it's been bugging me for about 12 years. I, I don't know. I mean, possibly with the guy, I mean, he might be one of those guys who, I don't know what his, he would look like with a full head of hair. But mm. he's one of those guys who goes bond in the sun kind of thing. There's a really baking hot summer that night, wasn't it? One thing that's interesting about that team as well, Ehiog and Wright reflect the fact it was a good Villa team under Brian Little, but David James is interesting because he didn't get in the United 6 squad, did he? And I don't think he was even close. He obviously had Seaman, you had Tim Flowers, Schmeichel, who had a brilliant end to the season like Cantona. And that's kind of around the period when people associate James. Obviously, he made a mistake in the cup final when... Fergie said he was waving at Giorgio Armani in the crowd. So I find it quite interesting that he was in the squad. I don't really remember either way whether he had a great first half of the season or not. But yeah, I thought that that, that one really... That and Hullet, which is a classic kind of... It shows that even footballers back then were kind of susceptible to a cultural cringe. Because Hullet had a decent season, but no more than that. Um, whereas, you know, Ginola was a fair choice because he was bloody yes, brilliant for a lot of the season. Yeah. Um, I think... With Hullet, it was quite a coup to have him in the league, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. It was. I think it was more of a vote. It was a vote for the previous eight years, wasn't it? As much as anything. Yeah, yeah. Like a lifetime achievement inclusion. This was the period as well where, because it was '96 that Ravanelli went yeah, to that's right. that summer. It was '96 summer he went to yeah. Middlesbrough, didn't he? That was this was the point at which, like with the Cool Britannia thing, that the, the the Premier League became like it became peak Premier League, didn't it? In many ways, where it almost yeah. didn't matter who you signed for. That's why you had sort of Ravanelli going to Middlesbrough because the Premier League was so wonderful in inverted yeah. commas and glamorous and fantastic. It was like Serie A in '89 or something. It was the yeah. place to be so much. It was like Middlesbrough. Well, I don't really care if it's Middlesbrough. I'm going anyway because it's the Premier and League and the money, of course. 
especially if you were over yeah. 30 and looking for a, a nice <laughs> retirement payday. But it was, that, that was kind of the first wave, and I agree. And But then they, in 96-7, they started to get proper players close to their peak, like um, Zola and a couple of others. I suppose Janino came in 95-6. Uh, but you're right, I think that 95-6 was a really significant year in terms of the kind of appeal of the Premier League to foreign players. Yeah, but before that, there were a few, but it was like, there were often, it was loads of Scandinavians, weren't there? And things yes. like that. Not to disparage Scandinavians, but obviously they weren't kind of world stars, people like Patrick Anderson or whoever. Gunnar Haller. Gunnar Haller, of course. Talk about Oldham, yeah. Go on, Mike, I sorry. Think there's, um, sorry, there's probably a couple of big reasons for that. In what well, within the 95-96 season there, the first one was that the Bosman ruling was passed in... Yeah, it's a good point. Oh, good, true, yeah, yeah. Four months after that, the Premier League... Uh, they renewed uh, their deal with Sky, which would, would dwarf the you know the nineteen ninety two deal. It was like more than double the amount of money. So you all of a sudden had all these cash rich clubs who could basically buy any player in Europe or or put in an offer for any player in Europe. Anyway. And of so course, post, sorry, post go on. Yeah, now that's when you had the great flood of. I think Ferguson bought five, didn't he? But um, yeah, he did. That picture of him with him is Van der Howe, Pavorski, Jordi Cruyff. And is it Solskjaer and Ronnie Johnson? Yeah, that's right. And of course, it was around that period you had the, the famous, apparently, it might be apocryphal, but when Jack Walker said, why would we want Zidane? We've got Tim Sherwood. <laughs> but you're right, it became more kind of... And I know Zidane was up and coming then, but, you know. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm just thinking, who else stands out in that team? I mean, the forwards are interesting, as you said. Leon Hullet. I, I suppose Keane wasn't quite the dominant player he became then. It feels like, I think Keane kind of ascended to... The, greatness in the 96 cup final which was after just yeah. after the, obviously the thing had been voted so i suppose yeah there weren't that many outstanding contenders Inter was playing abroad Redknapp was good but you know was didn't, he didn't have demand conclusion yeah yeah he, he did have a good season it's interesting but manimal wasn't in it maybe yeah, he yeah. Fell, maybe he fell victim to the 4-4-2 prejudice because of course liverpool played a back three and he played in a kind of free role so I, I, rem- I remember at that time, and probably people listening will remember as well. Do you remember the number of torturous think football pieces there were about McManaman's free role at yeah. that time? They were it's never like, ending. It's like, it's like we we discovered tactics in 1995. Like everyone just discovered the concept of tactics, and everyone became yeah. an expert he, overnight. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Um, we'll just say that I think uh, two others that probably worthy of a mention. Dwight York had a brilliant season for. Oh, he did. Yeah. He got about like 25 goals. Sharon had a superb season for Tottenham. There was, one chip, the... there was one chip he scores. I think it might be a Coventry. Just his slow motion chip. It's beautiful. Yeah, of course. Yeah. See, you mentioned so Cantona, then... but it just shows you. I know Cantona didn't score as many goals as Chris Armstrong that year. You have to remember that. <laughs> yeah, Cantona <laughs> yeah, was because he actually. There was a lot of talk that he'd been kind of. The, the, he was on his best behaviour after kicking that racist clown and that therefore he wasn't the player he was and then he just exploded from around certainly from the game when they won at Newcastle and it just kept 1-0 Cantona 1-0 Cantona one thing that I think is occasionally forgotten is most of those 1-0 Cantonas had at least one awesome save from Schmeichel huh. I'd argue he was probably never better than in that running um, yeah but David James is on the list so Schmeichel actually hardly ever got into PFA team of the year I wonder if that's because people just didn't like him. I don't know, opposition players. I mean, it is, well, it is, at the end of the day, it is democracy, this. So actually yeah. people could just go, well, <laughs> yeah. we don't like you. So, look, you know. look how well that's going in the world. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, let's not go there. There's always been 
no debate about how seriously the voting is taken in this as well. I mean, you, you hear these kind of apocryphal stories of they give all the voting slips to someone at the club and he just kind of ticks them and then, you know, on a whim and then sends them off. Whereas, you know, conversely to that, you get on, you know, the Sunday supplement, all the journalists on there picking the, F, yeah, the FWA award, you know, really struggling internally, moralising about, you know, picking a right role model and that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> yeah. that's what God, I, can't, I can't think which is worse, really. I think I'd rather have just a random kid ticking boxes than the uh, FWA moralising. <laughs> Um, there must be an app now, surely. They mustn't have to do it on a bit of paper anymore. There must be a person who does it for them. They must <laughs> well, you still have to... Flunky. That's a flunky for that. Sorry, Mike, you say you've got... Start that again, Mike. I'm say... Oh, sorry. Uh, you still have to walk into a voting booth with a pencil and a bit of paper. and have got that technology for voting in elections yet. So. <laughs> So there you go, the 1995-96 PFA team of the year. We will look at some others. I was looking at some older ones uh, just to see which ones would be quite interesting. There was one from 82 and in Division 2, a player who you may have heard of, you two, right? But I hadn't because he's playing in Division 3. Cess Pod. Have you ever heard of, have you ever heard of Cess Pod? No. We will it sounds go... like an illness. It does sound like an illness. <laughs> Cyril Pod, he's one of the Britain's first black players and played exclusively in Yorkshire. He played for like Scarborough and some other, somebody else what? who was crap. But he's, um, but yeah, he's. Uh, we, I'm not going to do him now, but I will, we'll come back and discuss these kind of unknown gems you can find when you're looking through some stuff like this. We'll get him on for next week. Can I just say one quick thing? Sorry, the um, I think it's the '96 '97 team, the third division. Would that have been the bottom division then? Yeah, the, um, yeah. yeah it would have been the mid. The midfield pairing was Roberto Martinez and Jan Mulby. <laughs> oh, that's sensational. <laughs> hey, that's, that's got the bottom tier of English football. <laughs> you said you can't pass your way out of those leagues. Oh, oh, right. Right. That's yeah. tremendous. There'd have been some craft there, wasn't there? Roberto Martinez and Jan Bowlby. Did Jan Bowlby run at all for that entire season? I bet he didn't. Just, just played beautiful twenty-yard passes <laughs> with his head up at all times. Yeah, he's great. His um, just as a quick aside, his chapter in Simon Hughes' book. Men in white suits, or whatever it's called, is so good. He interviews eleven Liverpool players from the nineties. Mulby is just so interesting, funny, eloquent, really, really good. He's a big pundit on Radio City up in the northwest now, which is where I live. Obviously, so you get him quite a lot now. With that, with that very everyone comments on it, but it still doesn't get any less bizarre. The bizarre Danish scout accent thing that he's got—it's the strangest thing. Right, ladies and gentlemen, that's us for this week. Thank you very much for joining us. Don't forget you don't forget to subscribe, tell your friends, and you can get in touch with us at Ness and Dorma Pod. We will be back next week for more 80s and 90s football chat. Thank you very much indeed. Goodbye. Sports Social Podcast Network.